Okay, so my guest today is an old friend, Seth Godin. He's one of the few people that I've met beyond mega celebs in the entertainment world who is often simply known by his first name, Madonna, Cher, and yes, Seth. <laughs> Over the past few decades, he's made quite a ruckus in nearly every domain he's touched from business to marketing to education, innovation, and human potential and beyond, in no small part by encouraging us all to join him in purposeful ruckus making too. And he's launched a number of successful companies, taught millions of people, and left his mark on our creative culture. And he's written just a bit. In fact, he writes daily at seths.blog, which is one of the most popular blogs in the world. He's the founder of the Alt-MBA, the Akimbo Workshops, online seminars that have transformed the work of thousands of people. And Seth is also the author of 19 international bestsellers, translated into more than 35 languages, including Purple Cow, Lynchpin, The Dip, This Is Marketing, and now his latest, The Practice, which is this really insightful and provocative look at how to get more out of the work that we do by giving more to it, to the world, and to ourselves. Or as he describes it, you'll learn to dance with your fear, take the risks worth taking, and embrace empathy required to make work that contributes with authenticity and joy. And that is what we explore in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. You know, it's interesting. So 
reading your book, um, in the background, I had playing the weird to say new album from Keith Jarrett, Budapest. Yeah. And while I'm reading, I had this really interesting experience that, um, so for, for our listeners, Keith Jarrett is this stunning jazz and classical pianist started playing. I think when he was three played with Miles Davis played with, you know, so many amazing people and then began to do these completely improvised solo concerts, the most famous of which was recording poem where he would just sit down at the piano, having no idea what he was going to play. And then for three, four hours, sometimes just play. And I have him in the background as I'm reading your book on the practice. Wow. And, and in the, my, in my mind, this thing that you have shared in various ways over the years, what makes someone an artist is they're doing something that might not work. And it just, it all seemed to fit. It was like, he was the manifest expression of everything that you were talking about. Uh, this, I have so many things to say about Keith Jarrett and, uh, I hope he feels better. He's had a yeah. tough health cycle, but, uh, if I could require one of 10 albums for people to listen to when reading the book, that would be one of them. I heard Keith play for the first time in the seventies. And at the end of the concert, I was in college, they called him back on stage for an encore and he came on stage and he played like eight bars of rolling blues that were thrilling. And then he stopped and he turned and he said, I don't do encores. And the reason I don't do encores is because when I have delivered to you what I made, it's finished. And I'm not playing a game with you to say I'm holding something back. And I, that stuck with me. And then I saw him the most recently a couple of years ago in Carnegie Hall. And when you get to Carnegie Hall, there are giant, giant vats of Ricola cough drops just for his concerts. And the reason is because he, several years ago, realized that when the crowd starts coughing, it's not because suddenly they have a scratch in their throat. It's because he's done something that made them a little uncomfortable, a little slower, a little more introspective. And he said, if you're not willing to work at least as hard as I am, to engage with this music, I should leave. And he, I've been there when he's walked out of a concert. And what happens when you get to Carnegie Hall is there's this tension in the air because everyone doesn't want you to blow it. They're like, make sure you get some cough drops. And the tension is a key part of what I'm talking about in the practice, which is we're not trying to fit in all the way. We're trying to create just enough friction that something can change. Mm -hmm. I have been told that um, he will at times, even when it's really getting annoying, stop what he's doing and have everybody say like three, two, one collective cough, go <laughs> get out of your system. And now let's like get back to work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. This idea of um, creative tension, I think is, is really fascinating to me because it also, it's, it's not tension that exists within the creator. It's, it's a, it's a co-creative tension. Correct. Um, talk to me more about this. Well, if you want to shoot a rubber band across the room, you have to pull it backwards first. That change is what art does. And I know this is something that is controversial. Some people think art is decoration. It's not. Art is a human act of making things better. And making something better means changing things. But change always has tension that goes with it in between you and the person you're creating for. 
the tension of it might not work, the tension of I'm not sure I want to go there, the tension of I might not be qualified, the tension of I might cough. All of those pieces heighten our senses and it is part of the deal. And that's why, you know, I've for my whole life, since my mom taught me when I was 13, I've given people tours of contemporary art museums. And you really can't look at more than a dozen paintings on a visit to a contemporary art museum. Because if it's going to work, it's going to work because it changed you. And you just get too wiped out after you've had your way of seeing the world change just a few times. But if you can use oil paint or musical notes or a keyboard to get someone to change, that's pretty extraordinary. And it creates tension. And then if you do it well, it creates a benefit. Yeah. I mean, implicit in what you just said, you know, you say that the, the tension exists between you and the person for whom you're creating. So what if the person you're creating for is you? And, and my curiosity, is that still art the way you define it? You know, I think of, um, I've been incredibly blessed to sit down with, uh, Milton Glaser, you know, who <laughs> passed away, um, I guess earlier this year, and, but had a stunning career, 91 years. And, and I remember him telling me, he said, you know, I, I realized when I was a kid, you know, that I love to make things. And then I realized that, that if I actually made things that move people, that could be a career, but it seemed like two different impulses. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about this. Uh, I will. And then I'll tell you my Milton Glaser story because yeah. it's not really speaking ill of the dead. Um, so if you make it for yourself, it's a hobby. And I love hobbies and you should have hobbies. And one of the things that you have opened the doors for so many people around is this inner work of mindfulness, which is too important to be called a hobby, but it is a deal we make with ourselves. And the question you have to ask yourself if you're going to make any creative work is, do I want to be on the hook? Because to be on the hook means I made a promise and I will keep it whether or not I feel like it. And so I feel like if you're doing your hobby, part of the privilege of a hobby is you can stop anytime you want because you didn't promise someone else. But are you doing the important work of mindfulness of working on yourself? It feels like there is a promise made between your subconscious and your conscious, between the inside and the other voice. Um, and one of the things that someone like Milton Glaser was so good at was persuading himself that he was doing the work he wanted to do in the moment when he was also pleasing the client. And Milton Glaser didn't get to be Milton Glaser without pleasing the client. But pleasing the client doesn't mean, what do you want? I will do that. If your motto is, you can pick anyone and wear anyone, then you're not much of an artist. Part of what it means to please a client when you have good clients like Glazer did is to tell them a story that they will accept your inner insight, even if it's not what they expected. And my Milton Glazer story is I, I'd been a brand manager. I'd done packaging. I was the client. And in 1986, I moved to New York City and I wanted to learn to be a creator not just the client. So I signed up for Milton's class at the School of Visual Arts. And it was a portfolio class. And so he had to approve you to get in. And I show up with all the packaging I'd built and the millions of dollars worth of stuff. And he said, yeah, but you didn't do this with your own two hands. I said, I know, I'm gonna bring a different point of view. And here's the deal. If you don't think I'm adding any value, I'll leave. 
And that was a gutsy thing for a 27-year-old to say. Um, and so he said, fine. And at the end of the third class, he kept me after class and he said, you should leave now. And <laughs> he kicked me out of his class. But he didn't kick me out of his class because I didn't have something to say. He kicked me out of his class because I did have something to say. Because I knew the punchline of the joke. And he was trying to help these designers on their own figure out the punchline. And because I had been in the room, I was revealing the punchline too soon. And I am glad he asked me to leave because I didn't want to hurt the experience of these other creators. But basically what Glazer taught in that class was how to see, not how to do what you felt like, not how to do your craft but how to see what was actually there. And that was something he was great at and most people struggle with. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would say the vast majority of people alive <laughs> spend their entire lives not even realizing that they don't know how to see, let alone actually struggling to see. Um, it's not even a process they step into. You know, what I struggle with in, in your framing of art versus hobby I agree with so much. And at the same time, I think about famous filmmakers who take the one for me, one for the studio model. I think about um, uh, a friend who, um, recent friend through uh, actually our, uh, our producer, Danny Kaintop, who is this wonderful guy who has a workshop in LA and he has been building some of the most stunning jazz guitars, acoustic guitars for, since he was 15. And whether like it, whether he has a guitar sold, whether he ever intends to sell it or not, it's not why he does it. Um, he does it because being in the workshop, the process of creation, regardless of how it lands, regardless of how it interacts with someone else or changes them or whether he gets paid for it, that's a nice thing for him. It's wonderful. But fundamentally, I don't think that's why he does it. And does that mean he's not making art? I'm, I'm looking at your face and saying that's not the right assumption. No, it, I'm not sure. So I, I'm doing a poor job of differentiating. So let me try again. He wasn't born to make jazz guitars. Jazz guitars were here before he was born. But if they hadn't been, he wouldn't have invented them. Jazz guitar is a genre that he has chosen because it lights up certain parts of him. And in order to do it as a professional, he has to make a product, a guitar, that meets the standards that other people have as well. He can't say, well, this one can't play a B note because I didn't feel like adding the note, right? That as soon as you show up as a professional, whether you're a filmmaker or a guitar maker, you're saying, I accept the genre. I will change the genre. I will listen to the unfiltered, nonverbal voice inside of me about what great looks like. But they're also really reverse engineering based on domain knowledge. They have a knowledge of what has come before. They know how to cut dialogue so that it rhymes with the other films that people have seen. So we make up this incredibly complicated story that has side effects like writer's block. But in fact, we are thoughtful beings who have domain knowledge and genre knowledge. And if we're gonna ship the work, we can't be a diva, not completely. We have to be willing to say, and it's also for you. Yeah, the clarification helps. Then when we think about the word shipping, shipping is, is then the way you're using it when it leaves the context of just you. 
Right. It's sort of like shipping is the moment that you have created something that now leaves your own private domain and interacts with the world in some way, shape, or form. Right. So we have a friend, uh, haven't seen her in a while, who um, was a well-known corporate architect. And once she had achieved a level of success, quit to become a furniture maker. And no one has ever seen the furniture she's been making for 20 years. And I applaud that, right? Because the minute she starts showing the furniture, it's not just for her. But she is not a professional furniture maker because no one has ever seen it. So when you share that, what immediately came into my mind is Hilma Afklint. That was the next thing I was going to say. Right. <laughs> All right. We're on the same wavelength here. That show was extraordinary and very, and it was heartbreaking at the same right. time. Right. Right. Because you hear you have somebody who is, you know, was one of the most stunning artists, capital A artists. And, you know, you go back to Kandinsky and all the, her contemporaries, and yet she hid her work until 20 years after she was dead. It was in her will, I, I believe, is, yep. was the story. Like, it wasn't allowed to be shown until then. Yeah, I mean, th her poor nephew, who didn't ask for it, had to deal with that, confronting bankruptcy. And it only ended up in the world because the landlord was going to burn down the building it was all stored in because the rent hadn't been paid, et cetera. Helma would have changed the world of art for all of us if she had shown her work. And the fact that she didn't was ultimately a selfish act. She did not hide it on our behalf. She hid it on her behalf. And for me, art, and again, I got to clarify, it's not just painting, but art is a generous act. We are bringing change to others because we think we can turn on a light and make things better. And to hold back is selfish and reminding ourselves that we can do this generous work is so important. I mean, this is what, podcast number 300 for you, something like that? Five, six, seven, I don't even know. So, yeah. And some of the episodes you've said, I don't know if this is the best one I ever made, but someone heard it and you changed their life. Because that is what art does. And we ship the work for the people it's intended for. And then we are surprised by what happens after that. But it is essentially this generous act of saying, here, I made this. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting distinction to be made also between um, withholding work because uh, for selfish reasons versus fear-based reasons. Or if we talk about, you know, like Helmoff Clint, this story goes, you know, Rudolf Steiner shows up and says, no, not good. And she, that triggers something in her mind that says, well, that just means society isn't ready for it yet, but they will be. So is that selfish at that point? Or is she actually saying, this is so important and it will yeah. matter so much that I want it to land at a time when people are ready to receive it? That could be completely correct. And I might be wrong about what her motivation was. My understanding was that because of the misogyny at the time, because of issues of class and spirituality, she had made the decision that this wasn't for other people. Um, but you're right. The temporal element of this is also important. Like, when am I making this for? Maybe I'm not making this for the person down the street. I'm making it for that person's children into the future. That's still generous. What I'm trying to get at is the story we tell ourselves. and. I think the story of a hobby, and I have tons of hobbies. 
I will never sell a canoe paddle I make because the minute I sell one, my entire narrative of how I am, why I make them will change. And we're entitled to do things for ourselves. But if we're going to show up as a professional and on the internet, that means shipping our work with one click, one you know button press, we have a different narrative, which is we can't command the infinite audience to love what we did. We can't command people to get the joke. We have to find the smallest viable audience, a group of people who we can serve and make it for them. And most of the people who I wrote this book for feel stuck because what they really want is a guarantee. They want someone to tell them that if they put their heart and soul into it, everyone will like it. Yeah, we want that in every part of our lives, not just our work. Yeah. Our relationships, our health, it's sort of like the constant, like, where is the person who's just going to say, it's all going to be okay. And then I can breathe, exactly. you know, and you know, which brings me back to, you know, earlier you brought up this notion of mindfulness, you know, which to me has been the practice of getting comfortable with the fact that you will never know. And um, almost to the point where I, I don't know if you feel this, but if I'm doing work and I don't ever feel that edge. It, it's now a signal to me that it's, I'm not doing the right work. Yeah. Yeah. No, you nailed it. If when we think about this, so Tony on Trump and Rinpoche's great quote, uh, everyone is falling, falling, falling. Uh, but the good news is there's nothing to hold on to. And when I feel like I have something to hold on to, the whole thing's empty for me because then it's just rote. Then I'm just, you know, putting truffles into the candy box over and over and over again. And I'm super fortunate that I don't have to do that for a living. A lot of people do, but if you are going to do art, you need that feeling of falling. Mm, yeah. I so agree. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some States. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 
25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com goodlife. That's netsuite.com goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, something I've been thinking about, and you know, we're really talking about taking actions and making decisions in the face of the unknown now, and which is easy when the stakes are low. But when the state, you know, like we, we love reading books about people who are in like absolute fear-based dilemmas because we don't have stakes. But when we're the protagonist in that story, we freak out and melt down. Um, I've been thinking through the course of this year in particular that there's a distinction between the uncertainty that we welcome and sometimes step into or even create in the name of making art versus the creation or, or the uncertainty that so many of us are moving through right now. Do, do you have that same sense? Oh, for sure. I mean, I used to love to go on roller coasters. And then finally I hit the age right when I went on the cyclone in Staten Island, where I was like, if I was in a bus or a cab that was like, this, I would get out. Why am I paying money for it? Um, but people pay money for a roller coaster because it is this controlled sort of disaster. And current events combined with the media made us feel like it was an uncontrolled sort of disaster, an existential one, not just one that upset our desire for the status quo, but one that really undermined our sense of justice and fairness and health and possibility and opportunity and connection and culture all at once. And not only that, but everyone was feeling it at exactly the same time. So you couldn't even go somewhere else where people weren't aware of your particular trauma because everyone had it. And compounding it, which doesn't get off mentioned very often, is the world has always been about the baby boomers. And the people who are between 58 and 72 are now 
entering a final chapter of the way they think about the world. And so instead of it, the world's going to get better of 1968, it's, it's all over of 2020. And I think when we compound all of those things, it's the hardest cycle I can ever recall of what it means to truly be mindful to chop the wood and carry the water today. Because if you're fortunate enough to not be ill today, at least you can try to make something better but it's been a, a real slog. Yeah, I think uh, so many people I know it have been feeling it. And people who I know who are really comfortable, they have cultivated the skill of stepping into that space to do their work. They're struggling this year um, yeah. because they've cultivated the skill and, and it goes to that word that you use, which is control. You know, So there's this really, it's the razor's edge between the uncertainty that you invite where you are deliberately losing control, but you you kind of know that you have a ripcord, you know, um, and versus the uncertainty that is not invited, you have no ripcord, you, you have no idea if and when you can ever step out of it. And when you compound those, you know, even people who have trained in the skill of you know, like alchemizing uh, you know, fear into uh, possibility, they're just become stifled and paralyzed in a way that has been, I, I've struggled with this year and I've seen so many others struggle with. Yeah. And we can't make it go away, but we can dance with it. And it doesn't mean we're going to dance the best dance we ever had, but it's better than the alternative. And, you know, for me, the, uh, as soon as I can get down to just connecting with one person or five people, just focusing on how do I move that from here to here? It makes it easier for me than if I have to think about, yeah, but what are we doing about carbon? And what's life going to be like in 20 years? Because the further out we try to make our circle in time and space, the harder it is to not want control. And the internet brought the whole world to everybody. And it might make sense to just have a part of the world instead of all of it yeah um it's about locus of control right it's sort of yeah. we don't feel like we have locus control in the context of the world but in this one teeny little domain so it's almost like you can you keep asking the question you know like what is the smallest point for which i feel like i have some sense of control but also still enough groundlessness uh, creation is possible and then maybe you keep testing and, and pushing the boundary of that out until you find the edge yeah and, you know, I'm really glad I had my daily blogging habit long before this hit, because there's no way it would have been easy for me to start it in, you know, April or May, but there's going to be a blog from me tomorrow. I don't have to decide that. I don't have to negotiate that. It's just part of the practice. And the problem with day trading with the media is it will destroy your practice, if, especially if you don't have a firm one, because there's always going to be something breaking that they want you to drop everything and embrace instead. Even if you have no control, they're trying to remind you you have no control, but not in a productive way. Yeah, um, in a fear-based way. So you will continue to, to consume exactly. and consume and consume. Um, it's interesting, the, your decision 20 years ago to say like, I will wake up today and before I lay my head on the pillow, something will be written. And like you said, you know, however many hundreds of you know, episodes we've done, however many thousands of, of things you've written, some of it's great, 
some of it's average and some of it I'm not speaking for you, but I'm speaking no, for me. me too. I'm really Half embarrassed. Below yeah. average, but you don't know. Right. Like, I did a post last week. It took less than four minutes. And I heard from more people than anyone of the whole month. I don't know. The harder I work, the less it works. I don't know. Yeah, I learned that a long time ago also. Um, the notion of deciding these things, um, you know, it was it was fascinating years ago when I was really focusing a lot more on uncertainty, which interestingly enough, has been swirling back. Um, I was looking at the patterns of so many different creators across art, science, business, life, health, and found this really fascinating pattern, which was that there was a stunning amount of ritualization and habit creation in every domain of life except that one place where they felt charged to do their art. Yeah. And I got curious about why. What's your lens on that? Well, I, you know, most of us have felt decision fatigue, particularly, let's say, you, back in the day when we could be tourists. Four hours into being a tourist, you're exhausted. Just like whatever's on the menu, we'll take it because you've made so many decisions that day. And so decision fatigue is real. And uh, by eliminating whole swaths of decision from my life, I make it so that I'm thirsty for a decision. I want to make a decision. And the only place I'm allowed to make a decision is the 26 letters of the keyboard, right? And so, yeah, I have intentionally boxed in, you know, in the last six months, you know, how, I don't know if it, does, it works for you, but Google Maps sends you an update once a month of all the places you've been, right? And it's gone from you've been to 18 countries to you went to Yonkers, and so the geography has gotten smaller. The, the clothes I wear have gotten smaller. I am come to this room every day by myself. But as a result, in order to satisfy my need to make a decision, I got to do it with my keyboard. And uh, again, the industrialized mercantile marketing culture doesn't want us to do that. It wants us to always be one-click shopping and trying this and trying that. But if you do that too much, you won't have any reserve for the hard work of creation. Yeah, which is terrifying because billions of dollars and brilliant minds are going into trying to figure out how to make us do that too much. Yeah. Exactly. All day, every day. And you wonder, I mean, of course it has personal impact. I often wonder what the societal impact is on that, on the repression of contribution. Yeah, well, I mean, you just have to spend some time with the... Uh, industrial education establishment to see how we do it from an early age. One of the things that's happened is the parents in my town realized something that took me a while to figure out, which is that education has nothing to do with learning. They're watching what their kids are doing at home and they're just butts and seats who are sitting there trying to take dictation and then regurgitate it. That's not learning. And it was hidden and now it's not. And the reason we built it into education is we need willing consumers and we need compliant factory workers. But we don't actually want more of either of those in our world. We want kids who are comfortable being bored and who will solve their boredom problem by creating. And we want people who will engage with one another with respect and dignity and create a better next thing. But we have pretty much weaponized the school, so it won't do any of those things. Yeah, and eliminated boredom. <laughs> I mean, 
like the, the the state that is most fruitful for forcing people sometimes angstfully and and you know like with huge resistance to say well i this really sucks i need to do something that feels a little bit different is almost entirely eliminated from our daily experience these days yeah now we we ran this workshop uh free for people whose senior year had been completely disrupted hmm. and it was uh 5 days you had to apply to get in and you know, 10, 20% of the people who applied got in. It was 14 hours a day for five days, no tests, no exams, no certificate. 99% of the people who started finished it and they uniformly said it changed their life. What did we do? We just made a place. We said in this place, we're going to give you, you know, a, the shortest possible prompt. Please come back tomorrow morning at 10 with group work. And these flowers just bloomed because finally someone was out of the way of these high performing people. And they weren't wondering, is this going to be on the test? Cause there was no test. What would happen if we multiplied that times, you know, the hundred million kids who are in school or whatever the number is, and just let them do student directed self-paced projects. I mean, it would be extraordinary, but it would require boredom and trust and we don't want to trust them. Mm, yeah. We'd have a lot of artists wandering around. Yeah. I remember when my daughter was in fourth grade, she loved, as a kid, she loved reading. Absolutely loved reading. She would just sit down and lose herself for hours. Then in fourth grade, she came home one day and said, teacher said, we need to read for 35 minutes a day. That was it. It was yeah. over. Her love affair with reading was done. We were, it was so heartbreaking to watch that process unfold and to try and figure out how do we counter this? Because she's also somebody who's, she has learned from the system. You know, she likes to perform and she's very, you know, she, so like how, when you're trying to do something like that, you know, so the, the, the notion of you creating this five day workshop and saying, let's disrupt it. You know, what's spinning in my head is, okay, so now you have permission to do that in theory, because we're in a circumstance that nobody's ever been in. How, how do we take, the outcome of that experience and then talk to the the local parents and the local administrators and local teachers and say why why doesn't this happen again next year and next year and next year and next year and why don't we scale this into every school how did we end up with the school we ended up with it took a hundred years right how did we end up with the highway system it took a hundred years we want with progressive good ideals to fix everything right away what we really need to do is plant the seeds and build the ratchet so that it eventually occurs. So, you know, I'll narrate this journey on my blog and almost no one will get the joke except 50 people will. And those 50 people will model it for 500 people. And long after I'm gone, maybe that seed will grow into something, right? And that's the only way change ever happens. It happens peer to peer and it grows over time. And so people like your daughter are gonna remember what it was like being in your house. And maybe she'll put together a group of five people when she's in high school or wherever she is now, and then five more people. The network effect is real. It is truly the most powerful thing in our culture right now, but we are not patient gardeners. Yeah, um, so agree with that. And you also use the word modeling, which whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader or you know, safe argument, they're the same thing. You're out there in the world where anybody is looking to you for a nod on how to behave, um, you know, what actions to take or not take, words don't matter. 
they look at how we we live you know if if you take on an ethos as a as a grown up that says you know like i will regularly disrupt myself for no other reason than to model for other people that that is an acceptable way of being you wonder what the ripple effect of that would be yeah no we become what we do not the other way around nah. um it seems like the program you created also the 5 day program was that in in any way derivative of what you created with the alt mba for you know like full-blown adults, but much in a much shorter time frame. Well, so the Alt-MBA, which still is, is around 5,000 graduates later, adults need more structure in the sense of uh, what it's Tuesday. What are we doing right now? And they have full-time jobs. So it's three hours a day for a month. And it has 14 projects and a lot of curriculum elements to it. Here, what I was trying to do, and they're running it again soon, is um, to say, what you really just need is a safe platform. And we're just going to have a meta conversation about working on your work, learning how to learn. There isn't going to be anything for you to take notes about. Where the whole thing started was this. About seven years ago, a friend asked me to give a talk to her 30 summer associates at Allen & Company. And Allen and Company is sort of the pinnacle of late capitalism. It's where big deals are done. So if you're a summer intern at Allen and Company, it's because you have parents who know somebody, pretty much. And so there's all these people in blue suits, men and women, and you go into this room and they're all sitting around this long table and they're really good at taking notes. They're really good at knowing what's on the test. And I said to them, okay, you're five weeks into the summer. Warren Buffett comes in and Elon Musk is with him. And the two of them say, great news. We have a really important, fun, powerful project. And we're putting you, this person right here, in charge of it. You're going to have two months to work on it with an unlimited budget. You can pick any three people in this room to join you for this project. That's the hypothetical. I said, all right, so take out a piece of paper and write down the names of the three people in this room out of the 30 that you want on your team. And there's all this uncomfortableness in the room, right? As don't worry, you won't have to tell me what you write down. So after a little bit of cajoling, everyone writes down all three names. And I turned to the room and I said, how many of you think more than one person put your name down? <laughs> and I said, because you all started from the same place five weeks ago. So the second question is, if you had the summer to do over again, what would you have done to be one of the people that folks would have put on their list? And there was this really fascinating silence in the room because I think what they understood for the first time is that is in fact how the future is going to work for them and for just about anybody else. Who wants you on a list? Are they going to put you on a list because you did well in school? Or are they going to put you on the list because you are generous and honest and thoughtful and open to possibility and all the other things that are skills pretending to be attitudes. And they're all a choice. So what would happen if just for today you acted like somebody who wanted to be on everyone's list and then repeated that? And th I can't remember ever once hearing that in organized school. Yeah. I mean, such a powerful demonstration of changing the question by which we measure the way we invest our energy and our efforts, our heart and our souls, which 
profoundly changes the way like you wake up every day and decide what to say yes or no to. Um, but yeah, I like the, that question framed in that way, or even remotely similar, never dropped into my experience of, um, and, and it's also fundamentally, you know, it kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier. It brings generosity right. and, and creativity back into the context. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I got all choked up the first time I did that exercise because I it just came out of the blue for me. But watching the expression on these kids, super privileged, right? Why hadn't I been told? Why hadn't anyone ever explained to me that meritocracy is a scam and that what we're actually in this for is generosity and connection? Whereas, you know, the way you get dignity is by offering dignity. But we don't even talk about dignity to people, whether they're kids or adults. And dignity is in a crisis right now. It's in really short supply. Yeah. Do you think that's true of all generations? I feel like boomers, Gen Xers, and to a certain extent, even millennials, I, I, and I hate using wide swaths like that, but just for ease of conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like Gen Z, um, I feel like there's a generation coming up right now that is that is different, qualitatively different. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's overlooked when we talk about a post-capitalist mindset is what happens to communities when they start running out of food? What happens when there isn't enough to sustain us? Because based on every bad science fiction movie I've ever seen, suddenly someone quickly shifts to, well, how do I get mine? And what we did in the last 25 years was just add all of these layers of frosting on top of the cake of life. And people got obsessed with getting more frosting. And frosting is ultimately unsatisfying, right? And we forgot to focus on where are we actually creating value, not how do we get a prize at the mall today? And so I'm worried that as more and more generations come along that don't make a thing, we have a challenge because we need to make a thing. We need to make a thing of value for the people in our community, because it's that value that we're able to exchange for the things that we want with or without marketers telling us what we want. Yeah. So agree. I also wonder whether there's the other side of the pendulum. I'm curious, you know, there's, if, if you, if you do swing the pendulum all the way to the side of generosity and expression or expression in, in service of generosity, um, I don't know if you can really tease the two out. I wonder if there is a tendency for some, or maybe an, an impulse that may be more generalized, that tips from generosity to indulgence. Because I feel like I have experienced that as a consumer. There, you know, is, isn't fascinating. I want to say last year. Um, I don't know if you saw this. Derek Delgado did this show in New York in a black box theater called In and of Itself. Yeah. Blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> Seth is holding up cards, which were sort of a um, inside joke from the show. But this was an illusionist slash mentalist slash. I don't. I have no idea how you describe him. And, and I'm watching, and I'm, my mind is being blown. And at some point during the performance, I also start to think he's enjoying this more than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, when he was doing the memory part, which lasted too long, he was enjoying it more than we were. But the other thing is back to the museum thing. There was so much mind shifting going on. The, the show had to be too long because the fatigue set in. 
Um, you know, the thing about generosity that's worth examining is generous does not mean free. If it's free, it might not even be generous at all. Generous has to it a component of emotional labor. So I had my car had to go in for service. And the three or four people who I interacted with, I mean, it was under warranty. I didn't pay anything for it, but it was in a completely ungenerous series of interactions because not once did someone say, sorry, this is taking longer than we said it would. Sorry can mean one of two things. Like if I say, sorry, your cat died, that doesn't mean I killed your cat. It just means I see you and I'm extending myself. So I'm sorry that this is taking longer. It doesn't mean I wasted all the time in the shop. It just means I see you. That's a generous thing to say. Whereas if you're busy giving away free CDs, if you join AOL, that's not generous, right? That's just a, a shift in our transactional posture. And what I am hoping will happen as we start to realize what a dead end we put ourselves in into this consumption race is that we'll do the generous work of extending ourselves even if we don't get a prize because that takes emotional energy and that emotional energy pays dividends for other people. Yeah, um, so good. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details with that you know part of what i think we're talking about here also is um there's a there's a time element in all of this you know and it's shown up in a lot of what we talked about from the intensity of the five days to the the speed with which you put that together because you you knew its urgency there was a moment there was a window that would close there's a really interesting dance i feel like we all do when we're trying to put our art into the world between patience and impatience and mm-hmm. there's a tension there yeah. because you need both, but in different ways and at different times. Yeah, that's totally profound. It's um, we hurried too much in the last few decades, but in other ways we didn't hurry enough. And when we are trying to overcome our fear, it is tempting to stall because then we are putting off, like Hilma Op Klimt did, the day when other people are going to see our work. We don't want the next Rudolf Steiner to say, it's not that good. In those moments, we need to hurry because the engagement with a marketplace opens the door to possibility. On the other hand, if we are hurrying simply to get out of the space of tension and get it over with, that is a mistake. You know, one of the things that Maybe one day I will be able to do a five or 10 day silent retreat, but it feels to me like the last four days are the key, no matter how long it is, because you could say, well, I've already done, but it's the last four days where you've stayed longer than it seems reasonable. And then opportunity arises. Mm, So agree. And I, and I'm in the exact same place of not having yet done that retreat. (laughs) And and same the same exact love, but it's interesting. Else, even in the context of my, you know, I've, I have a daily morning meditation practice, and I have for a decade now. It's twenty five minutes, you know, not longer, not shorter. And I cannot tell you how many times I hit minute twenty three, and I'm like, oh, this is where it begins, <laughs> right? But I couldn't just get, you know, I couldn't just start at minute twenty three and do two minutes. I need those twenty three minutes to get there. Right. Um, so it's this really weird dynamic. And if it was a 45 minute sit, it wouldn't start till minute 41. So <laughs> you're busted either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting to sort of like look at the different time frames and lenses and, and understand that, that there's a time to be patient and a time to be impatient. Um, you know, zooming the lens out a little bit also, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about cultivating a change in lens, a change in metric. Um, a commitment to a daily practice of thinking about how you're going to bring yourself and your work to the world. Part of that is a behavior change. Part of it is a decision change. But part of it, and I know you talk about this, is also it's an identity-based change. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Well, um, a friend decided to become a runner. And the way you become a runner is really simple. You run. And if you run every day for 30 days, even if it's just to the mailbox and back, you're a runner. That changes your identity, what you did. And podcasters are podcasters because they have a podcast. 
and because they keep doing it. So I regularly run into people who say, I wasn't born to be creative. I wasn't born able to write. I don't have a talent for this or a talent for that. And I was, I'm like, well, show me your bad work. Show me your, your practice of showing up with things that don't work. And they can't. Because what they're really saying is, I'm afraid of my bad writing. I'm afraid of being seen. So I won't even have a practice. And the magic of the culture we live in right now is you don't have to do it for the whole world. We're not going to put you on the Super Bowl. You can do it for 10 people. You can do it under another name. But simply do it. Because once you do it, your identity changes. And if you want to be a leader, the only way I know how to do it is to lead. Yeah, it's um, it's a mindset shift, but also you know, I've been fascinated by the research around passion, and where they essentially say you know it is an impulse to do something uh, in a particular way. There's also research that that creates um, a split that says you know passion can be expressed harmoniously or obsessively, and the harmonious expression of a passion is one that is constructive and that allows you to honor all the other things in your life that are good. The obsessive takes you into that dark space where you are doing it and you're, you may be doing it really well at a high level, but you're probably destroying everything else that you, you say you care about along the way. And, and I wonder sometimes as people step into this realm of building their practice and saying yes and developing their habits, that a counter to that, and maybe it's individual, but I've seen this a lot is also to set up effective circuit breakers that allow you to understand when this practice is actually becoming unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, that's so profound. Um, can we acknowledge that human beings have been around for 100,000 years and for only uh, 1,000 of those years did anyone have a chance of making a living doing the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? And so... It's a modern problem and it's amplified by applause and money. So if applause and money are causing you to become a diva, self-hating, self-destructive, selfish, narcissistic, then you have an inputs problem because we're not entitled to any of those things. And if those things are getting in the way of your well-being, you need to self-intervene or have someone else intervene to change what you are measuring. And in 2020, uh, North America, we tend to measure what's easy to measure, not what's important. So just because a company calls someone a friend doesn't mean they're your friend. And just because they call a symbol alike doesn't mean someone actually likes you or the opposite. And getting hooked on those cycles is a real problem. So, you know, in my case, I have no idea how many people listen to my podcast. I have no idea how many people read my blog. I don't have any feedback loop on a daily blog post. And I used to. I used to get comments. I used to have social media shares. And they were not just ruining the work. They were ruining me. So turn them off. It only takes a lot of effort to turn them off once, and then they're off. And if we can get back to the thrill of creating with generosity, it's good for us and it's good for the people who are consuming what we make. Yeah, which also I think loops in this idea that you talk about and you've talked about for years and you've definitely circled back to it in, in a central way in the practice is the notion of critique and also distinguishing critique from criticism um, and, and 
understanding the difference between data, which is valuable and we want, and emotion or subjectivity, you know, which may be helpful at times, but also can be completely devastating. You know, and I think sometimes we tend to make it a binary thing rather than a grayscale thing. Um, and and when we, we err too much either way, you know, exclude everyone or let everyone in, they're both devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most people aren't good at giving criticism, just like most people aren't good at making pizza. They're both skills. And you would not accept a pizza that was made by someone who was bad at it because it wouldn't be delicious. Especially not as a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just because someone wants to give you criticism doesn't mean you need to hear it because it might be, in fact, mostly is a statement of this work wasn't for me. That's all the person had to say. Anything below that doesn't help us because all the reasons, you know, I'm a vegetarian and this is a sausage pizza. Okay. I don't need to know that. All I need to know is I didn't make this for you. Let's go on. But then every once in a while you meet someone who is gifted in the best possible sense. They've earned the talent of giving criticism. And that is a gift. That's a gift for the ages. And we can embrace that. But getting good at distinguishing between the two, that's not easy. And I know that there have been many times in my career where I mistakenly listened to someone because they had high status and they were completely, completely wrong because what they were really talking about was their fear or their standing in the world, not my work. Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, it's connected in, in a fairly linear way to the notion of being an amateur. You know, when, when you wake up every day and step into the work and say to yourself, I know a little bit, but the universe of what I don't know is so much vaster. And the only way I'm going to know a teensy weensy bit more tomorrow is if I admit that I don't know the vast majority of it and I'm willing to just go and do and, and whatever happens, happens and be willing to be in that place. I remember, I think it was Dubner and Freakonomics a couple of years back said like the most terrifying phrase on the planet for people to say is, I don't know. We want to feel like we know everything and, and we become so invested in status yeah. that, you know, when we actually reach a point where we're like, oh, uh, I'm a beginner, it, it's, we feel like success is about no longer being a beginner. When I, I can't imagine not being that way because it's so much more enjoyable. Oh, yeah. And it is brilliant. Um, you know, a guy used some connections to get a half an hour with me to talk about a piece of software he wanted to launch. And I honestly thought he wanted my insight as someone who has launched software for many, many years. And within five minutes, I realized what he really wanted was for me to like the software he had already decided to make. Validation. Yeah. You know, and like, why is he wasting his time or mine on this conversation? I would have happily sent him an email saying, yeah, you can like this software if you want. Because if you can find someone who can give you criticism and you can learn from the universe, that's priceless. I mean, my conversations with Nikki Papadopoulos, my editor at Penguin, every word is worth something to me. Because even when I don't agree with her and take her advice, I know where it's coming from. And to walk into that room and insist that she like everything I did would be foolish. Yeah. The um, zooming the lens out, you know, we're having this conversation in the context of work and art. 
Um, but especially these last couple of notions around understanding the value of criticism and where is the data, where's the, the, the honesty and also being okay as an amateur. It's not just about work. This is about life and this is about the society that we're living in right now is in no small part the result of just a massive crisis of this, um, you know, along with the crisis of connection and community. Yeah. And also people who are making a profit from A, making us feel insecure and B, making us feel isolated from people who are different than us. Every single time capitalism makes a profit at something, like half of Los Angeles is paved. Half. Because someone made a profit paving Los Angeles. And so I'm not at all surprised that we feel divided because people are making a profit doing it. Mm. Very hard to unwind that. The, the fiber of society and economics and everything and, and now morality and is wrapped around it. But um, I certainly hope we find our way back to a, a different way of being um, sooner than later. This feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. Um, sitting here in this container, sadly not face-to-face -face as we, we, we normally do, but uh, distant, which is still beautiful as it is. If I offer up the question to live a good life, what comes up? To be missed if you're gone, to connect to people who care about you the way you care about them, and to explore things just outside of your grasp so that we can feel like we are moving towards something that matters to us. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.